Well, welcome. We're in um, our series on the letter 1 Corinthians about a really messed up church that is nonetheless blessed by God. And I want to just, before we get started, I guess, talk about um, communion. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have asked Jesus to forgive you, and then you have surrendered your life to him, we are going to remember Jesus' death. This isn't for everyone. This is just for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And if you want to participate in that, at the end of the message, there are these little cups on the back, and you can stand up and go get one right now. While they're doing that, um, if you did not fill this out yet, fill this out. Um, A lot has changed in the last two years, and I just want to know who you are. Church is not a 35-minute speech once a week or singing some songs. It's a spiritual family. And you know who I am. I'm Bob Kedlisic. I'm one of the pastors here. And I would like to know who you are. So um, if you fill that out, in fact, if you have filled it out, just everyone pick up the bucket on the end of the row and just pass it down the road. Don't put money in it. Just, just put these cards in it and, um, and collect those. If you're online, there is a link for you to go to and fill that out as well. So um, getting started uh, with this passage Interesting that of all the things that the church is messed up about, uh, people getting drunk during communion, not believing in the resurrection, sexual immorality, and yet the first four chapters, Paul focuses in on unity. And in this third chapter we're going to look at today, he talks about the importance of maturity in, in unity. And, and now, spiritual maturity for a lot of people, I think, is, is viewed as a bonus thing. Right? It's something only for Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, and Bob Kedlisek, right? Like, like in this rarefied, and, and the truth is that's not really the case. So what I brought to you, I brought with me today a good friend, uh, Brian. And so I'm a pastor, and some of you think because of that I'm not normal, okay? Which I may not be normal, but it's not because I'm a pastor, um, but Brian is normal, right? So he's not a pastor. He's a, um, a project manager for JHA companies. And, and so he, he's here, though, to share about, I wanted him to share a little bit about sp- this whole subject of spiritual maturity. And, and is it important? Why is it important for, for everyone? So. I'm thankful because in the first service, Pastor Bob introduced me as an expert in maturity, and I was thinking, yeah, you should probably talk to my wife on that one, but... Um, expert in immaturity. Oh, oh is that I, what you said? Okay. I, yeah. <laughs> I misheard it according to what I wanted to hear, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a great question, right? Is spiritual maturity something that we should even be pursuing? Is it worth our time and our effort? I think before we can really answer that question, we need to define that word, maturity, Maturity can mean very different things depending on the context. So what image do you have in your mind when you hear the word, when you you hear that someone is immature? Okay, Hollywood paints this picture for us of the the 40-year-old man who chooses not to get a job, so he lives, still lives with his parents, and he expects his mom to cook his meals for him and do his laundry, right? So... In light of that, according to our culture, what characteristics describe someone who is mature? Words that come to my mind would be independence, achievement, social awareness or social IQ, 
basic manners, status, maybe possessions, financial responsibility, and the list can go on and on. Now, these are not necessarily bad things. In fact, most of them are very good things, necessary things, right? We teach our kids to have manners, to be responsible with money. Eventually, we want them to become independent and to become respectable members of society. So the, pro- the problem is that in our culture, maturity can be very subjective. We often rate our level of maturity based on who we're comparing ourselves to. But God has a different standard. God's standard is unchanging. Now listen to the characteristics that God uses to describe maturity. Looking in Galatians chapter 5, he says this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. While culture describes maturity by how an individual is perceived by others, by looking primarily at the person's outward appearance, God sees the heart. The word of of God describes maturity using words that are primarily focused on character. Words like integrity, humility, compassion, self-sacrifice, or putting others first. If you think about it, our culture seems to not even notice spiritual immaturity, while at the same time, our culture judges harshly those who have social immaturity. So why is that? Because social immaturity stands out, whereas spiritual immaturity just kind of blends right in. Think about it. If somebody lacks social awareness, or maybe they lack basic manners, Or maybe they choose to remain dependent on others to provide for them financially, even though they're perfectly capable of providing for themselves. Our culture sees those characteristics as what? Lacking maturity. But how is a lack of gentleness viewed in our society? Is that a maturity issue? Or is that just considered a personality trait? What about a lack of love or a lack of kindness? Does our culture see a lack of humility as immaturity? Or is it just viewed as confidence? If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3? If you don't have your Bibles, the verses will also be on the screen behind me. So as we look at this letter from Paul, there were sins in the Corinthian society that were commonplace. As in, if you sinned in these ways, nobody even blinked an eye. Because everybody was, was doing that. It was just normal to sin in those ways. So here you have the Corinthian church, those who have received the grace and forgiveness of God, those who possess the very spirit of God, living and acting in, a, in the exact same ways that the culture around them are acting. And that's exactly the, po- the problem that Paul's about to address. He's saying you blend right in. You're still worldly. So the Corinthian church doesn't seem to think that spiritual maturity is really that big of a deal. But Paul saying, this is a huge deal. Let's read, let's read what he says. Starting in verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, 
not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. So Paul's saying, listen, church, I want to talk to you on an adult level, but right now I just can't. You're acting like infants. Okay, and Paul's not using that word affectionately, right? This isn't baby in a cute sense, right? Our youngest son just turned one um, two months ago. And so for over a year now, we can't stop talking about how cute he is, right? <clears throat> but that's not the concept that Paul's referring to here when he refers to this church as infants, as babies. Think rather the 25-year-old who's rolling around on the floor in Walmart throwing a temper tantrum because his mom won't buy him the toy that he wants, not the same cute concept, is it? You see, it's not a problem for a baby to act like a baby. We would expect that, right? The problem is for somebody who should be acting like an adult who is acting like a baby. So Paul's saying to this church, you're not where you should be. Your growth has been stunted. Your immaturity is evidenced by this very, very basic and prevalent problem. Paul's going to address what that specific problem is in these next couple verses. And I believe that what he has to say to the church in Corinth is, is very relevant and much more relevant to us today than we're even aware of. But before we go there, I think it's important to clear the air as, and get everyone on the same page. Okay? Everyone has a different background in what they've heard and when it comes to teaching. And there have unfortunately been some preachers that have communicated some false messages as to what spiritual maturity actually is. So to clear the air, we're going to first talk about what spiritual maturity isn't. So Pastor Bob, can you explain what spiritual maturity is not? I would love to if I have my <laughs> mic on. Um, and and just, just to say, if you haven't seen Brian and Lainey's little boy, he is so cute takes after Lainey. Um, we're all very, thankful for We're that. very thankful for that. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, um, spiritual maturity is not, I want to just quickly, three things. And one of, one of those things, spiritual maturity is not, this, this was the biggest eye-opener for me. And it comes out of this passage because he's talking to these believers in Corinth. He's in Ephesus, 500 miles away on the other side of the Aegean Sea, modern-day Turkey. Corinth is in Greece. And, and he was there when he writes this letter. He arrived in Corinth five years previous, which means no one in Corinth was a believer five years before. And, and so when he's saying, you should by now not be infants anymore. You were when I started because you were brand new believers, but by now it's been five years. You should be mature. And, and there may have been a handful of people in that church who had moved up from Jerusalem or Judea and that, that had been believers longer than five years, but five would be the maximum. And so you know, you, a lot of times when we think of maturity, we think you have to be 18, right? You have to be a, a certain age. And spiritually, that maturity can develop very, very quickly. Paul is saying two years down the road, three years down the road, Five years down the road, you should be mature spiritually by now. So it's not, it's not tied to time as much as we might think it is. Certainly there is some time necessary, but not as much as we might think. It's also not tied to our lineage. My dad was a deacon in the church. My mom is still a, a Sunday school teacher for over 50 years in the church. How does that help me 
Or what does that tell you about my personal relationship with God? Absolutely nothing, right? And in fact, I sometimes will ask people, hey, tell me about your personal relationship with God. And the response is, my grandpa was a pastor. I'm like, that's great. I'd like to play in the NBA someday. Tell me about your personal relationship with God. Like what your grandpa, and I don't respond that way because that would be mean, but, but what your grandpa is or did, God doesn't have grandchildren. He just has children. And, and so it's just about your personal, and the great thing about this is your mother can be a heroin addict and your father a murderer, and you can have an awesome, mature relationship with God. It's not about your, your, your family tree. And, and the third thing that, that spiritual maturity is not is it's not about your knowledge. And, and as he goes through these verses, you know, he says, you're still worldly. There's jealousy and quarreling among you. Are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? He's not saying, you can't give me a nice, succinct view, you know, statement about what the Trinity means. Or, you know, I asked someone in that church if they knew what uh, Jacob's second name was, that God named him and what it meant, and he couldn't tell me. Like, that, that, that has nothing to do with spiritual maturity. I mean, the longer you follow Christ, the more you're, you're learning about him and you pick things up along the way. But what group, when Jesus came to earth, what group was the most knowledgeable about God's word when Jesus was on the earth? Pharisees. And who were his biggest enemies? Pharisees, the people who knew the most about God's word were the most immature. And so our maturity is not directly tied. We need to know about God. We need to want to know more, but, but you could know all sorts of, there's a, there's a commentary I have back in my office and the man who wrote it, it's on the book of Daniel. He doesn't believe a word of it. He's studied the Bible. He knows the Hebrew and the Aramaic and the original language his entire life. And he's totally immature because he doesn't believe a word and it doesn't affect his life and how we live. Maturity, he's saying, it's about whether you're jealous, whether you're quarreling. It's about whether you're acting worldly or, or, or divisive like this. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. He says, that's what maturity is. It's about behavior. Uh, not, not just about what you might know. And, and so at the root of this behavior, though, I, I want Brian to talk about that because there is, there is a sin that, that is, you know, if you chop it off at, at the trunk, it'll keep sprouting back. There is a sin and root here that, that Brian's going to just talk about. Yeah, so, so Paul sees this glaring sin in the Corinthian church. And even though it's very basic, it seems like the Corinthian, Corinthian church doesn't even think there's an issue. That's why Paul is about to bring it up. So why don't they see it? Well, I think it's because it was socially acceptable. Listen to what Paul says. Are you not acting like mere humans? I can see the church as they are reading Paul's letter for the first time be like, uh, yeah, of course we are, right? We are human. This is normal human behavior, and that's exactly the problem. See, as the church, as the body of Christ, are we not called to a higher standard? We are called to stand out from the culture around us. We are not meant to blend into it. 
So Paul in this passage is addressing a sin that was socially and culturally acceptable. But for the church to embrace the cultural trends and to act like everyone else meant that they were spiritual babies. This sin manifested itself in fighting and quarreling. Do you think there was fighting and quarreling going on all around them in the Corinthian society? Yeah, of course there are. Of course there was. Do you think there's fighting and quarreling going on all around us as we look around in our world today? Of course there is. It's obvious, right? But listen to what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say, hey, just stop fighting. Just stop arguing. Just stop being jealous. Why doesn't he say that? Because the sin goes beyond the outward behavior. Paul's addressing the heart. My prayer for us today is that we would take an honest look at our hearts and to see if the sin that was plaguing the Corinthian church is also still prevalent in our hearts today. So what is it? What's the sin? What's the root of all these problems going on in the Corinthian church? It's the sin of pride. Or more specifically, a superiority mentality. So what, what is a superiority mentality? Okay, it's summed up in this phrase, I'm better than fill in the blank because fill in the blank. I'm better than him because I follow Paul. I'm better than her because I follow Apollos. I'm better than that individual because frankly, I'm just smarter than they are. Or I'm superior to them because I am far more educated. Those people are so arrogant, so ignorant. I can't believe they think that way. If only they could get to my knowledge of understanding, my knowledge of smartness. Right? Even though I might have just attained that level by watching the latest YouTube video, but we're not going to talk about that. Now, we would never talk like this, right? I'm better than so-and-so because so-and-so. We would never say that. We probably don't even think in those terms. But my question to you this morning is this. Do you feel that? Do you feel that way? When someone posts something online that you believe is an absolute lie, do you think less of that individual? Do you feel superior to that person? Do you feel better than others based on the crowd that you identify with or the viewpoint that you seem to line up with? We see this all over our culture, don't we? In fact, it's absolutely commonplace. The media and the news, they make their living off of a superiority mentality. But even if everyone in the culture thinks they are better than everyone else, does that make it okay for us to? We may feel compelled to speak the truth because we believe that somebody is believing a lie. Now, I want to be clear here. The issue is not whether or not we say something to that person. The issue here is whether or not we feel like they are less than. Or the issue is whether we feel superior to that person because of their particular viewpoint or belief. Brothers and sisters, we have no right to think that we are better than anyone else. We aren't. To think that way is not just immature, it's destructive. This is a pride issue, and the reality is that because it is so prevalent everywhere we look around us, 
we're tempted to think it's really not that big of a deal. We feel that rise up in our hearts and we think, yeah, everybody's doing it. Besides, I don't actually say that I'm better than them. I don't actually act on that pride. I think it, but I would never tell them that. Here's the bottom line. Spiritual maturity is most clearly seen by how we treat other people, not by how much knowledge we have. And the sub-point to that is this. We treat others, or how we treat other people, is directly linked is directly linked to how we view them. Do you view other people the way that God views them? With love, compassion, humility? Or do you see others the way that our culture would typically view them and write them off as ignorant and judge them and feel better than them? Listen, we kid ourselves if we think that we can hide the superiority mentality if it is in fact prevalent in our hearts. Why, if your husband thinks that he is better or smarter than you, <clears throat> how good is he at hiding that? How loved and valued do you feel? In the same way, husbands, if, you, if your wife thinks that she's better or smarter than you, how respected do you actually feel? You see, it, it oozes its way out. This, this pride, it oozes its way out into our relationships, doesn't it? We act based on what we believe, and we treat others based on how we view them. Do you view other people the way God views them, or do you see others the way that our culture would see them? Do you feel superior to others based on your knowledge, your experiences, your education, or the viewpoints that you have? Let's keep reading here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building." Here we see Paul, after presenting the issue of their superiority mentality, gives the church some perspective. He says, why are you finding value and status in who you follow? We are nobody. It's not about us. It's not about what you know. It's about God. We are just tools in his hands to do his work. So we're left with, how do we, how do we apply this? What does this look like? Pastor Bob, can you speak about this? Can, how can we apply a God-centered humility in our everyday lives? Yeah, I want to... I keep turning myself off, so every time I say amen or something, it doesn't come, come flying across the... Um, here we go. Spiritual maturity, it's not about how we treat each other, how much knowledge we have. Um, it's about how we treat each other, not our knowledge. Um, in the church... You see jealousy many times. Jealousy is, is from a zero-sum game mindset. I was explaining this to one of my boys the other day. A zero-sum game means if I win, then you or someone has to lose. And so it's this idea, you either love me or you love that person, right? And there's a jealousy because I think 
This happened in our church a number of years ago. We changed the traditional music service to a contemporary music like we have now. And so I had an individual come to me and say, um, she, she didn't say that the music was wrong, right? She understood that, no, it's just a difference. But she said, by changing the music of the service, you communicated that you don't love me and you don't love my friends. And I thought, oh, that's not true. But my response was, do I have to obey you to show you that I love you? And, and the world would say, yes. <laughs> you got to do everything I tell you to do. Use the right pronouns that might change on a daily basis and, and do this and do that. And if you don't do everything the way I want, you don't love me. And that creates jealousy and that creates quarreling and fighting. And in the church, we need to be different. We need to realize that sometimes I, I, I won't do what you want. Sometimes you won't do what I want. And it doesn't necessarily mean we don't love each other, right? And, and so that's what he's saying here. And, and I've seen in churches, leadership and, and congregations, there's like a pendulum swing. Um, I, when I was growing up in a church, there were some people, not everybody, but some people in that church that felt like we hired the pastor, the pastor works for us, or more, the pastor works for me, and he better do what I tell him to do, right? Because I'm in charge, and this is not the servant-like attitude that God desires. This is not a humble attitude. This is an arrogant attitude. Pastor, you need to do what I say. And then, then there are churches that are the other side, where the pastors have that attitude toward the people. I am the spiritual leader of this church, and God put me here, and you better do what I say. I'm the voice of God in your life. And that's, that's arrogant as well. That's, that's not humble. And so, so both sides need to be able to... So even in, in Tunkhannock right now, they're voting today on whether to call... Kurt Goglin as their campus, Bridgewater Tunkana campus pastor. Essentially, Kurt, if they vote him in, will become the Bob Kedlisic of Tunkana, okay, in the church. And now, now all the pastors got together and the overseers, and we all felt like, man, this is a great guy. We, we think he would be a great pastor there. But if the church congregation votes no, or in fact, if they don't vote at least 75% yes, then he's not the pastor. And we don't get our way, but we're okay with that because it's not about me, it's not about you, and, and we need to agree with each other on things that the Bible isn't clear about, all right? We need to fight about this stuff, right? Paul goes on to say, okay, the guy having sex with his stepmom, that needs to stop. If it doesn't stop, you kick him out of the church. This isn't, uh, well, you, you do your way, I'll do my way. No, 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 that is clearly, uh, God is against that. He's saying, some of you are getting drunk in communion. That needs to stop. That isn't just something that we're like, ah, whatever. Um, but so many things in the church and so many things in our lives, the Bible doesn't say specifically about. And, and honestly, there are things that go on in this church that it's not the way I would do it. And I'm not going to tell you what those things are because that would be divisive. But it doesn't have to be my way. Right? It doesn't, I don't have to get my way all the time. And we, that's the attitude of humility we need to have that is the opposite of the quarreling and the jealousy and all of that that was taking place in the church. Um, 
Pastor Josh likes to say this. He says, we talk to people, not about them. And actually, even this week, there is a situation going on. And, um, you know, I, I hate... So I talked to somebody and said, hey, do you know what's going on in this situation? Could you, could you tell me? And he says, I actually don't. And, and, I, and I realized, you know what? I'm glad you don't because I shouldn't be talking to you uh, because I'm talking about that person. I need to go directly to that person and ask them. And, and so that's immediately what I did. I hung up with him, made another phone call to the person. And, and this is how we need to interact spiritually with, with people. Um, I'm going to, some of these verses, I was, I, I was doing the clicker. I was messing up with Brian here. Um, he's reading these verses. want to move on to verse 16 of chapter 3. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? Um, talking about unity still here. Next verse kind of explains it even more. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred. And you together are that temple. So in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, Paul makes an illustration about how your physical body, my physical body, is God's temple. And so I need to take care of my body. And I need to not go to prostitutes. And, I need to, and we apply this in other ways as well, um, that I need to take care of my body because my body is the temple, the Holy Spirit's inside of it. He is not saying that here. He's saying you together. Here the you is plural. You together are that temple. He's saying a local church is like the temple of God. It is sacred. And if you destroy a local family of believers, God will destroy you. That's pretty serious. I don't know exactly what that means, God will destroy you, but I don't want to find out. <laughs> you know? And so he's saying that's how important this is. That's how important unity in the church is. And, and we're, we're going to move on and just, I want, uh, actually one more verse. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you're wise by the standard of this age, you should become fools so that you become wise. So the world says, the world's wisdom is, you know, you need to fight for, for what is right for you. It's all about you. And if you... Um, overlook an offense, and if you, like, uh, don't get your way, that's weakness, and you're a fool. The wisdom of the world is to demand and claw and scratch and get everything that you want, and you fight for it, and, and he's saying, no, that's, 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 not, that's not wisdom. In fact, this is a great proverb. Some of you should memorize, we should probably all memorize it. I don't mean like some of you should memorize it, like Ben, you should memorize it. I don't mean that. Proverbs 19.11, it says, it is one's glory to overlook an offense. And, and sometimes we can't overlook an offense, right, because it's, it's hurting someone. And we, it's not to your glory to shove sin under the carpet and not deal with sin in people's lives. No, that's not one's glory. But an offense, it is, it is your glory to overlook an offense. An example for me is, I don't want to, so I'm not overlooking offense. But so my, I've given this illustration, I think, once before. My, my son mows our lawn most of the time. And, and once or twice, and I used to mow the lawn growing up, and sometimes I would miss, you know, just a little tuft of grass, right? And my dad would say, oh, I'm so thankful for how you mowed, but you missed a little tuft of grass. 
And the only thing I'd come away with was, I can never do anything right. Now, my dad was a great father, and that was not what he was trying to communicate, but that's what I got. And so my son will mow the lawn, and I pointed this out to him once, and I've tried to never point it out to him again, because he might miss a little tuft of grass. You know what? Who cares? He just saved me an hour mowing the lawn or whatever, however long it takes, right? It is, it is to your glory to not point out every little thing someone might do wrong. And maybe someone offended you. Well, if it's not a, a sin issue that they're going to hurt other people or whatever, just overlook it. And, and the world says, no, you're a fool to overlook it. You need to fight and bring it up and talk about it. And, and he's saying, no, that's, that's not the way it should be. Mature Christians, they need to practice mirror gazing instead of finger pointing, right? And Brian, why don't you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, as Pastor Bob mentioned, it starts with a look inside, right? It's easy to look at others and to put the blame of my sin on other people. As believers, we need to look into the mirror of God's word and allow that to shape our definition of maturity, not define it, not define maturity the way that our culture does. As Bob mentioned, mature Christians practice mirror gazing rather than finger pointing. So we see finger pointing going on everywhere we look, right? There's no shortage of finger pointing going on in our world. It's very commonplace to blame others, to blame my spouse, to blame my upbringing, to blame the government, to blame basically everyone else for my lack of immaturity. Now, I'm currently reading a book called Soul Care by the author Rob Reimer. And in it, he makes a very simple, very basic, but very profound statement. I'm going to read it to you. A person doesn't get to be a grown-up when they are 16 and can drive a car, or 18 and can go off to war, or 21 and they can drink legally, or 25 and get married, or 30 and have their first child. A person gets to be a grown-up when they take responsibility for their life. Brothers and sisters, we need to take responsibility not just for our outward actions, but for what's going on in our hearts. We need to take responsibility for that pride that rears its ugly head into the way we view others, especially those who have a different view than us, or those that don't live up to our expectations, or those that fail us or let us down. So how do we take responsibility for it? Well, first of all, I think it starts with an awareness. We have to recognize that when it, when it comes into our feelings. I think we need to recognize when we're tempted to think, hey, that we're better than somebody else. We need to recognize that this superiority mentality is, in fact, a problem, and it stunts our growth. Secondly, we need to, to confess that sin and repent of it. Repentance is a change in direction. It's I'm turning away from that sin, and I'm turning toward the path of holiness. That requires a change in our thinking. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
How do we renew our minds? We saturate our minds with the truths of God's word and we allow the truths from God's word to form and shape the way we view other people. We don't view other people just by going along with the typical cultural trends. We need to saturate our lives in this book. I'm so thankful that Jesus didn't have an arrogant superiority mentality towards me. He had every right to judge me, condemn me, and leave me in my sin. But rather he chose to pay the price for that sin. With an incredible act of mercy, he took my place on that cross. In that same act of mercy, he took your place on that cross. We're going to enter into a time of communion. Um, on these cups, uh, there's two tabs. The first clear tab on top will get you to the piece of bread, which represents Christ's body, which was broken for us. The second tab underneath that will get you to the juice representing Christ's blood that was shed on our behalf. Now, communion isn't about feeling guilty enough, mustering up enough guilt to be able to feel okay about participating in communion. Even on our best day, the reality is that you and I could never, ever be worthy to take communion. And that's exactly the point. It's not about me, and it's not about you. It's about Christ. When it comes to the superiority mentality, it's about embracing the grace and forgiveness that's available to us. And from that position, we can begin the process of allowing God to transform our thinking, to transform our minds, and to transform our lives in the way that we view ourselves, the way that we view other people. Communicate, communion is about celebrating the reality that Jesus did not leave us in our sin. He paid for it with his life. A little later in this letter to the Corinthian church, Paul says this in chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you drink this? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for not leaving us in our sin. Thank you for paying the price so that we can be forgiven and so that we can be free. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us the awareness to recognize when we are tempted to think more highly of ourselves. I pray that we would confess the sin of pride in thinking that we are somehow better, that we are somehow superior to those around us or to those that we disagree with. Father, it's through our love for each other that the world will see you. Help us not to conform to the pattern of this world, 
but Father, transform our minds and our lives to stand out as different from the culture around us. All glory belongs to you. Amen. Taking on this humility is hard. And so as we sing this last song, we um, sing with an understanding that God knows our weakness and he just asks us to surrender and to walk humbly with him and each other. Let's stand as we close together.